Welcome to the newly cleansed and refreshed In The Game podcast, where we invite you to transform your dreams into reality. Every week, we aim to touch, move, and inspire you to new possibilities for your life. My name is Sarah Maxwell, and is it really time for me to now intro my own show? Heck no! Bring in the Aussie talent to get it done. With their groundbreaking first season as The Nat and Sarah Show, the foundation has been laid for a life of manifesting your dreams. Join us as we delve into the nuts and bolts of what it really takes to bring those dream boards into reality. It's time to dust off your dreams and get back in the game of life. Are you a member of the community? Head to Facebook and search In The Game Podcast to download your three-step journal to begin the workshop-style teachings and gain exclusive access to your hosts and featured guests. Get ready to take action on your possibility. Today, we continue the conversation with the award-winning founder of Miracle Babies Foundation. Learning how to run a charity from scratch when she had three premature babies, Melinda Cruz began local, then brought the foundation national and now global. She has raised more than $10 million since the foundation's inception in 2005 to improve the lives of thousands of preterm and sick babies and families. Inducted into the Business Woman's Hall of Fame, she was also voted New South Wales Woman of the Year Premier's Award finalist, while also being a trusted consumer expert to medical professionals, where she serves on multiple advisory boards, including co-authoring 10 medical publications. She does everything from run the New York City Marathon to raise $230,000 for the foundation to helping the Australian Red Cross Blood Service Milk Bank Advisory Committee. Did you get all that, everyone? Which established the first ever national human breast milk bank. Like, how cool is that? She is relentless in her quest to improve the conditions for premature newborns and their families. Melinda, super happy to get the chance to sit down this morning. We both discussed before we press the button how much has been happening in our lives in order for this moment to happen. And I really want to discuss today like this journey that's allowed so many families and babies to live a better life because of what you have created. So thank you for being here with us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. It's amazing. Love it. <laughs> um, yeah, I just love women like you who are up to something in life. And I mean that as a mom. I mean that as a businesswoman. I mean that as a you know, social entrepreneur, like what you're really putting out in the world. And I'm really curious, like before you ever had these three pre, you know, do you call them preemies by the way? Or is that like the wrong thing to say? Yeah, no, pre- oh, we say preemies. You say preemies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, preemies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Here we go. So in, in Australia, we spell it with one E, two M's. And in America, oh. it's two E's, one M. So yeah. No way. <laughs> it's just I- accented a little bit different, a preemie or a preemie. <laughs> You, so you yeah. say premi? Premi, yeah, yeah. And we what? spell it with two M's. Yeah. 20 years in Australia, didn't even. <laughs> okay, I've, I've had some funny ones lately, like macrame versus macrame. It's like these, okay. little, these little subtleties. <laughs> so a premi, here we go. So yeah. before you had premi, premi mm-hmm. baby. Premies, yeah. <laughs> you imagine, like, what was it like and what did you use to dream about for your life? So for me growing up, um, you know, I, I guess I really 
I didn't have these big plans, you know, early on to say this is what I wanted to be. Um, but, you know, I did really well at school. Um, I loved science and maths. I um, have a science degree in genetics. So I went on and did that. Um, and at that time, what I really wanted to do was work in a lab. Like I wanted to be part of um, research and um, at one stage very early on. So, you know, I, I think I, I graduated in 98. So it's been a long time. I wanted to actually work in IVF. So it's quite funny that sometimes I think, you know, I've ended up um, in, in, in the baby world, which is quite interesting. But, yeah, definitely was just following, I guess, that really traditional path, which I did. Did well at school, did well at uni, and I did get the job. I was working in, in a lab um, in infectious diseases, which was very interesting. My my main tests were um, Hep B, um, Hepatitis C, and HIV. So it was really great. Like I and very established. I knew I had definitely a pathway in front of me, career-wise. Um, but I know that you and I have had this conversation that something happened about eighteen months in when I was doing that. I was newly married, so I married my high school sweetheart. So I was doing everything right. I was doing the tick, tick, tick. You know what mm. life was supposed to look like and be successful and about 18 months into my new role I had in Australia we get four weeks annual leave so by this stage I had six weeks owing to me and my husband at the time he was going um, he'd been offered or he had to go to work in Perth for two weeks so um, you know and I'd never been to Perth which was amazing and his boss said to him if you want to take Mel you can um, you know we'll pay for her with frequent flyers she can stay in the room with you and she can be on your meal card so basically a free trip to Perth that all happened I went and applied for my annual leave for two weeks and I was denied and it was really you know, it was such a kick in the guts at the time. And it wasn't during a holiday period. It wasn't when anybody else was um, having any leave. And my boss was lovely. Like her and I are still friends, like absolutely nothing to do with that. It was the fact that the work that I did, the testing that I did, there was no one to replace me. And it almost felt like I was almost being punished for being a good worker because, you know, the situation just didn't allow it. So, he went to Perth and I didn't and I had these two weeks to really contemplate and it really kind of kicked off, I guess, you know, what did I want to do with my life? I felt so stuck. I felt like I had done everything right and then here I was, somebody else, you know, when you're in a full-time job like that, you have, you know, two days off a week, four weeks off a year and then they control that. I had no control. So I wouldn't say that I... Like I didn't fall into a depression or anything like that, but it definitely started the whole conversation about what do I want to do with my whole life. Anyway, so he came back and he recognised that there was a difference in me. I just, yeah, there was something missing. And it wasn't an ego thing. It was just I wanted to be part of something bigger than myself. I wanted to be able to make a difference. And I just felt stuck. So I ended up going off to a retreat in the Hunter Valley, um, that was recommended to him by a colleague that she had done it and it was based on the work around Bob Proctor so it was really around his book you were born rich and the thing I took you know and it's not about money rich it's about you know abundance and being rich in your life and I, I don't know that those four days completely changed me I, I went from you know reading fiction books to non-fiction and self-help and um, you know just all of this I don't know it just brought up so much in me and you know, I look back now and I think, you know, at the time I thought I was having a midlife crisis <laughs> because I was, you know, contemplating and I thought this is what it feels like 
you know, being in my early 40s now, I think no, I, I've changed it to a quarter-life crisis <laughs> and being a really big renewal for me. Um, but one of the biggest things that I took away from that workshop was that they did a session where, you know, you really looked at how, you know, what you wanted your life to look like. And the things that they talked about was, and we do this with children all the time, that it's not about what you want to do with your life, but it's how you want to feel about it and how important that was. So we did this workshop where they wanted you to walk away with one, two, maybe three words that really resonated with you and mattered to you, that if you could do these things and feel this way about your life and carried yourself, then you would feel successful, fulfilled, happy. And for me from that workshop, the two words that I walked away with was create and contribute. Mm-hmm. And I've always held on to those words. I, I remember writing them down, I you know, stuck them up on the wall. And the important thing was you didn't have to know the how, how those things are going to show up in your life. And that's really important for my story because I was 22 at the time and hadn't had my kids yet. So it wasn't like I could sit down and say, you know what, I'm going to start a a foundation for premature and sick babies and this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to make it global. Didn't even have that concept in my head, didn't even know anybody with a premature baby. So it was more about being you know, really, I guess, understanding what did I want to do and what was that going to feel like? And, um, yeah, I mean, for me, that's kind of who I was before that. Um, Still continued to work um, for the next couple of years and then at 24, fell pregnant with my first one and, yeah, kicked off a whole different journey and changed the agenda of my life. Because I want to get there, but you've said so many interesting things about your initial journey up to having that first child. And the thing I'm curious, if you think about the dreams, like being, cause you have kids and stuff, you can imagine that you also were that little kid dreaming and imagining. Do you think that at the time you always felt that you wanted to contribute that way and create and then you started to like think more as you went to school and uni more about the what I have to do. Like, how did that path happen, do you think, where you got into a situation doing work that you like, but all of a sudden you felt controlled? So I guess what I'm asking is, can you see where maybe the path went from how I feel about my life to do with my life? Um, can you detect that? Well, one thing I know about myself and, you know, even as growing up or getting older, realising that we kind of stopped this from kids, I was always, always a daydreamer, always, always like forward thinking, imagining. Um, You know, I remember, you know, nowadays, you know, kids can be sitting in a car and and they're staring at a a phone or a device. But I remember going on, you know, trips and, and just staring out the window and my I couldn't like turn my brain off. It would just have all these thoughts. And, you know, sometimes people will say, you know, you've got, you know, your head in the clouds or, you know, you can't focus or things like that. But I think that's wonderful. If if kids are daydreaming, I think that's absolutely amazing, amazing quality. And I don't think I've ever stopped doing that. Um, It's just an innate part of my personality. But I think even growing up, like in high school and that, I, I liked... I liked being able to, uh, like, 
yeah, I liked being able to do the right thing. Like I was just a good girl. Like I just, I didn't do anything, you know, um, if assignments were due, I did them. Um, I enjoyed the stuff that I was doing. Uh, I loved, you know, going to uni. I loved that I got the qualification. Um, so I think all of that was fantastic and that was where I, I was at at the time. It just then became... I was always curious about new things, different things. I just didn't, I hated being, feeling that locked in. I hated feeling caged. And that's mm. what then happened once I was in the job. I, I stopped having that freedom. And my parents, um, they've owned small businesses, like when I was growing up. So I saw my mum being able to have that ability to, you know, leave work and pick us up or be at things. And because, yeah, they had that flexibility. And then being, for me, being locked into that role, even if it's the work that I wanted to do, um, yeah, it just kind of really hit hard. And I know when I do talks now and I say, you know, 18 months in, I felt this and, you know, 18 months of working full time is basically not, nothing and yet it really hit me hard. So, yeah, I've been at, at you know, I've done talks to, to audiences and they kind of laugh at that point like, oh, how naive <laughs> to be worried at 18 months. But, yeah, I think it was just an innate thing for me. And I did a lot of work at that time because, you know, wanting to be part of something bigger than yourself and that feeling, that calling, I think we all get that over our time where we just have this yearning to understand what are we here for, what is this all about, um, and and working out how to verbalise that because at the time I felt like it was really part of ego. Like who was I to think I could do something great or I could be great or I, I wanted to, you know, be out of this little cocoon and do something that mattered. Um to understand for myself it wasn't ego-driven. It was just something innate that was constantly driving me and I can't stop it. I can't turn it off, to be honest. Um, you know, once you accomplish one thing, the next thing kind of shows up and you get excited and you keep going. Yeah, I think your story is really interesting because the reason I'm asking more about the initial phase is because I think um, that exposure to your parents and that there was an alternative way that you could feel about your life. Yeah was really critical. And, you know, I, I hear, when I hear people now, I listen for like, as a parent, like meaning like, Oh, what do I want to share with my daughter? Yeah. Whereas in the past I was literally like always self listening, like mm. what is it about this that I need to hear? And so I think there's two things there um, for everyone listening. It's that sense of, is there a feeling that I don't even allow myself to have? And I think that's, you know, personally, 18 months, well done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you're at 18 years, yeah, um, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. And so just knowing that there are other possibilities out there and that you also have the doubtful, that feeling sometimes, and who am I to be that person? Yeah. But here you are. And look, the thing that I'm aware of is you have your first, you know, premature child and I'm just debating of like how much detail to give people, but basically, you know, this, um, this amazing experience that you have with premies, but I know that a lot of moms also had premies and did not go on to create a foundation that starts local, goes national and goes global. So what do you think um, that your experience met with this kind of dream, if you will, this daydream allowed you to create what you have today? Yeah, so I think for me, and the same, when I first initiated the idea, so the way that it came about, so my first son was born six weeks early, mm -hmm. um, Elijah, and he spent two and a half weeks in hospital. Um, once we were discharged with him, basically went home and there wasn't 
any support that I could really latch on to um, with him. But, you know, we, we managed our way through that with our, our first baby. With our second son, though, he was born at 27 weeks. Mm. I thought I would get a little bit further, but, you know, here I am 13 weeks early, five and a half months pregnant, delivering this baby. He was resuscitated when he was born, spent about 16 days on life support and then nine weeks in total before we brought him home. And even with that, he did really well because I was he was 35 weeks when I brought him home. So I remember one time he was sitting on my lap, um, really tiny baby, and I'm thinking, you should still be inside me for another five weeks. And he you are home like it was really surreal it was crazy with him though because he was born under 29 weeks under 1500 grams um, I was invited to be part of a support group at the hospital that they ran for the first 12 months after discharge so I went back to the hospital once a month and any parent that had been discharged with such an early baby um, in that 12 months were also there. So it was like a mother's group, like a play group. Mm. But at that group was um, all the allied health teams. So you had a speech therapist, a physiotherapist, occupational therapist, um, family support nurse, social worker, lactation consultant, and a neonatologist. There was a doctor there. So you really had some kind of guide on the development of, you know, how the baby was doing and how, you know, meeting milestones and things like that. That was my saving grace. You know, I, I'm Italian background big family around me, first person to have a prem. So nobody understood what I was going through or what challenges we were looking, you know, that were ahead of us because of what can happen when a baby's born so early. At 12 months, though, that program stopped and we were discharged from that. And I remember thinking, he's not walking yet, he's not talking yet, we're not on full solids. Like we still had such a long way to go and there was nothing, no support, and I felt really lost. So, and back then there was no social media. Like how did we survive <laughs> without being able to connect online, which is crazy. But I started to do what I could, you know, Google and have a look around. I did find a very small support group at another hospital at Nepean and contacted them. Um, the lady that started that was absolutely lovely, but I couldn't access their support because my babies were born at a different hospital at Liverpool. And um, so I thought, okay, still kept Googling. I found an organisation in the UK that had been running since the 70s and then one in, the, um, in America that had been running since the 50s. March of Dimes. So this was 2005. There was nothing. So in my head, I thought, okay, I gathered all the information, went back to the um, hospital where the boys were born and spoke to the head of the unit. Honestly, at that stage, I just thought, you know, one hospital will do what you know, PN's doing, just support those mums, um, had different ideas of what I thought, a support group and a charity. I wanted to be able to give back to the hospital because absolutely credit them for you know having my my babies and didn't know any other mums to help me so I spoke to the head of the unit and obviously he said yes which was great um, and then the staff the hospital staff put me in contact with other mums that they thought may be interested so I think for me a couple of things especially in those early days of why we're so successful and I still think it's it marries up to you know how it's how we've grown is that one, he said yes. So the fact that the the hospital that we wanted to service 
had buy-in, like he absolutely agreed with it. And I spoke to him a lot later about, you know, why did you need us? Why did you think it was a good idea to have us? And he said, you know, medically and physically we do everything so well for the baby and we've got, you know, world-class, first-class treatment in Australia. But he said something really key. He said if we don't look after the emotional stability of the family we're sending them home to, we're only doing half our job. He said, and that's where I knew that you something like this could come in. Mm. So that was amazing. Then when I was, you know, put in front of it and I was, oh, my God, I was terrible. I worked in a lab, so I was not a public speaker. <laughs> I only had my own stuff. So putting me in front of strangers to then try and sell, I guess, my idea or explain it, um, you know, all these mums felt so similar in terms of they wanted more support. It doesn't end when you leave the hospital. You, you need that um, connection. You need more support with, you know, not only the, what you're going through emotionally but then the development of the baby. So all of them were in. Like it was just they saw my vision, they made it their own, and it all just came together. And I think that's kind of been the story of our growth the entire time is that, there's been collaboration, there's been, you know, the medical side or the health professionals coming to us saying, you know, we'd love for you to come and talk to our parents or could you come and educate our staff on the parents' experience and then the family saying, well, you know, we're latching onto other families that have gone through it and the value, the absolute hands-down value to an emotional experience of peer-to-peer support. And there's so much research around the world in any kind of trauma and it is traumatic when you have a premature baby but any situation that's triggered a trauma in a person being able to speak to someone who's been there completely changes how they can emotionally heal from it so yeah so I mean for us it's it's really been those things but it wasn't a conscious decision like it's more it's just happened along the way and it's now reflecting back that Mm -hmm. I can see these were the things that made it really successful and when I've been asked to coach other non-for-profit founders and you know and I've seen other organizations who have tried to start up and you know say for example if there's a a mother's group that tries to do something similar and they they create it all separate and then they go and door knock on the hospital they don't get the same kind of buy-in and they hit walls so it's really about being yeah that collaboration between health professionals and parents and Mm -hmm. I I don't know what it is about me that kind of led it um, at, at the time you know, I needed the support and it was really interesting because we started Miracle Babies and then literally six weeks later in the whole, you know, trying to get it up and running, uh, we started the idea, it wasn't even registered at the time, um, I fell pregnant again for the third time. So I remember having the conversation with them saying, should we stop? Like, I don't know if I can do this. And that, like none of them wanted it to stop. So the whole way through that pregnancy, I was almost like the very first miracle babies or miracle mum that was supported <laughs> in the system that I had set to create for other parents. So it was quite wow. um, quite funny and it was such a different emotional experience for me because I had all of them and that's what I wanted for other people to be able to experience that kind of journey and that heartache and you know the fear and the guilt and everything that you go through supported um so it's amazing our very first launch dinner that we had um we had 200 people in the room it was 
amazing um, to, you know, showcase, I guess, to our little community that Miracle Babies existed. He was six weeks old at the time and I remember, like, everyone was on, like, leaky boob control <laughs> patrol because all I was worried about was the milk. <laughs> um, you know, while I'm up on stage, I just thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get a leak. This is going to be so embarrassing. Um, but, yeah, like, it was just been such an amazing journey along the way but it's always been always in collaboration with the people that we served and I think that's been a really big trigger for us um but me personally I, I don't know what it is about me in terms of I honestly thought at the time it was going to stay small stay local um I promised them a few hours a month I remember that and a few of them have laughed saying we're going to put that on your headstone <laughs> because it basically just took over our lives but it was because the need was there. I didn't go and, you know, had there been a, a charity or something, a support group that had already existed that I could have accessed, that's all I would have done. I would never have gone to go into competition, don't don't want to reinvent the wheel. It was just the fact that there was this massive gap. I don't know why. Um, and once I kind of put the seed out there, everybody watered it to help, help it grow. So it's just been absolutely amazing. Wow. And, and one of my biggest goosebump moments a few years ago, I was actually invited to speak at a conference in Florence in Italy, which is an absolute dream of mine to get to Italy. So it was just amazing. And there was a, um, a neonatologist from, he was from California at the conference. And he said, you know, I'm so close to retirement. He said, I probably shouldn't still be working, but, you know, I love my work. Um, you know, quite an elderly gentleman. And his words, and I've never forgotten, he said, I don't know why you, he said, but I think you're amazing. And he said, I have honestly have waited my entire career for someone like you to show up in terms of what we've been doing. And yeah. it gave me absolute goosebumps that, you know, I don't know why it was put into my thing. And I'm so yeah. glad I did that workshop where I knew I just wanted to create and contribute. I didn't need to know how the universe was going to give it to me. <laughs> and I, I, like I said, I couldn't have made this up. But um, it did. And, you know, just being able to, to run with that. And like I said, I think if, you know, if you've come from the heart and it was just a real genuine want to help people and to not have anything for myself and then realise it wasn't for others, that they came in, saw my vision and, and made it their own and, and it's just growing. And things that have come to us in terms of, you know, how we've grown across the country and that was because I was invited after um, about two years of operating at the one hospital, invited to speak at neonatal nurses conferences, just showcasing what we were doing and talking about it, and then being inundated from every other hospital saying, well, what you're doing for those families, our families need to, and that was, you know, how, how we kind of grew. And then going I'm just curious about that growth period, like that yeah. moment where you transition from being one of the moms, like grassroots to that demand increasing, I would imagine it's a little bit of a different skill set. Would you say like something else was required from you? You start to um, organize for other hospitals. I imagine you needed more yeah. people to help you. Like yeah. how have you gone with those steps where you've like had to kind of gain a new skill? Yeah, so it was really by that stage I had, so when we started there was a group of eight of us mums um, who were all, you know, introduced the idea. They said, yep, yeah, we want to do it and we want to um, help. And then we started to 
to, I guess, kind of form like positions. So by requirement, when you start a charity um, and we started just, it was just a New South Wales focused charity. It was called, um, it was under New South Wales model rules uh, as an incorporated association. So a requirement of that is to have a president, a vice president, a secretary and a treasurer, which four of us took on those roles. And then we were able to create um, other roles. So at the time we had um, a parent support coordinator a um, practical support coordinator so that would be resources and, and things that we could help and then a fundraising and marketing person so every you know I think it was once a month we would get together and, and start to, to look at how how we would grow this and everybody took on their role so oh, so enthusiastic about everything and I, I credit them like they say if you want to be successful surround yourself with successful people and you know I think people look at me going, oh, wow, she did this, but the team did it. Like, And everybody that's come in, even as we grew and we hire staff, always try and hire people that are better than you because make them the experts of what they do mm. and then support them. And it's really been that for us. The biggest decision we had at the time, so when after those first few conferences, it was quite, it wasn't too difficult to grow across the state. Um, so we had the discharge group that I was part of um, that got discharged or that we left at 12 months and was so hard, we were able to fund that and um, and extend it to six years old. So And we run those groups now. So when a baby gets discharged, they can be part of our group until they're ready for school. So it's long-term care. When we did that, we had to take it off-site from the hospital because it grew bigger. So we had like a local um, community church that gave us the facilities that we could run it. And the staff from Liverpool Hospital would all come and be part of that group. As word kind of got out, other, you know, families from other hospitals in local areas were then saying, well, we, what, can we come to those groups? We made a decision as a team to not turn anybody away. So we didn't have the same thing that we had at the first hospital that if you're born, you know, you, your children weren't born at this hospital, you couldn't access to it. And I credit the staff at Liverpool for that, being so open to say it doesn't matter, these families need support, let's do it. So then we were able to kind of replicate that model because the other staff were wanting it to say, okay, you know, could we get another facility um, donated, you know, in that area, volunteers to help run it, and we started building training programs. So it wasn't really that difficult when we were, we could, you know, kind of taste it and touch it and still have our hand in it. Yes. So in 2009, um, I got surprised. There was a, a TV program on Channel 9 called Random Acts of Kindness, mm. and Scotty Cam was the host. <laughs> and I remember, and it was so... Uh, it was at such a time where, because we were running out of our own homes and it was just, you know, our fundraising, we, we were having a dinner every year and it was just growing and growing. And anyway, so Channel 9 came and surprised me. Everybody else knew, so it was just on me. <laughs> um, and they basically took our entire team away and, for two nights into the city. When we got back, we had an office. We had oh. computers desks like it was completely decked oh. out we had a phone system so we were then running a national phone line like it was just absolutely insane in two days what channel nine did for us and just kind of elevated us Whoa. still being you know new south wales based local all of that when that aired on tv it then exposed us to the entire country so i know wow. like, 
in the very first commercial break, our little website and our emails melted. <laughs> we had that actually went offline. Like it was, it couldn't cope. It was crazy. But, and I remember we started bucketing everything and it was family saying, wish we knew about you and we were going through it. If you ever think of coming to South Australia, Tasmania, and we're putting them into states, you know, we'd love to jump on board and help you. And just so many people just saying, great job, keep going. You know, it's so important. Um, thank God somebody's done this. So it really elevated us. At kind of at the same time, I'd been nominated for a community award and I had the opportunity to meet the Premier, which was Maurice Yemmer at the time, because he presented the award. When I was up st on stage with him, he and it was supposed to be like, you know, get your award, shake hands, walk away. And he started talking to me and we kind of got into a little bit of trouble, but he wanted to say what he wanted to say. But basically he was telling me that he he's an only child, but he was actually one of um, one of four. And his mum had lost three babies, late stage um, preterm babies. So he knew as a sibling how important he said, you know, all this time and it was a different world back then you know when a baby passed away mums weren't able to see them hold them create memories the babies were kind of taken away um and you were you know sent home to try again like completely changed thank god that we've changed the system for mums and but he knew the importance of it so he had said to me i want you to come and, and meet me um you know we'll set up a time and we'll talk more about what you're doing um because he was you know Prior to being Premier, he was New South Wales, um, the Health Minister, so he understood the importance of what we were doing. So that was kind of going on at the same time. Anyway, approached, had a meeting with him and even put in a submission for funding. Two weeks later, he had resigned. So the funding application went nowhere, <laughs> but he sent me this really nice letter and at the, it looked like a standard letter that they obviously sent to, to people that they'd had contact with. But at the bottom, he had handwritten his mobile number and said, if I can ever do anything to help you, I would love to. So I had that. And then this episode on Channel 9 aired and it just, it was so overwhelming. And we ended up having a... Wait, I have a question there, and this yes. is maybe my personal um, <laughs> question. Like when things start, you know, it sounds like things just kept happening, right? Yes. Did yep. you ever have a moment where you went, oh, it's too big, uh-oh, yep. like what? <laughs> like what, do you do? what did you do about that? So th this is one big moment that when we discussed the option of going national... I sat down and looked at the numbers. So at Liverpool Hospital, on average, between 800 and 1,000 babies go through their neonatal intensive care unit every year. So that's, you know, up to 1,000 babies that we needed to, or families that we needed to support. Sat down and looked at the national numbers. It went from that 1,000 to 42,000. And I was sitting on the, um, like my carpet in my lounge room going, oh, my God, like how could we possibly do this? So we ended up having this meeting, um, like an emergency, not an emergency, but, a, you know, outside of ordinary meeting with our committee, our, our group of mums. Um, it was donated by a local golf club place, which was amazing. And I've still got, you know, we're sitting in their boardroom, <laughs> which was unreal. And just having the conversation, what do we do? You know, there is the need for it. Um, but can we do this? And the biggest thing, and it's so like, oh, it melts my heart because they all sat there and everybody had the same, the same feeling was that if we didn't grow, 
it meant that we were saying no to families. And as every single one of us had gone through it, we never wanted to be in a situation where we couldn't access support. So it was that one thing, like we just didn't want to say no to anybody. We wanted everyone, if they wow. needed the support, to have access to it. So then it was like, well, that's, what does that's that mean? Like, that, that just reminds me, though, of your mantra early days when you said, even with that one hospital, you know, when you said you were in the church hall and you said, we'll never refuse anyone. Yeah. It's interesting how that's such a driver for what kept you guys going and going. hundred yeah. percent. Oh. Absolutely. Oh. So because we were under that structure, we could only operate within the one state um, within New South Wales. So we know we needed to change that. Mm. So we had to go to a company guaranteed, uh, limited by guarantee. We had to put a board in place. And the biggest thing that I credit them because they worked so hard in those four years, all volunteer based to, to get this mm. up and running to where we got it to was that they would have to step down from the, their committee positions. And I said to them, I think I've taken this as far as like I can take it in terms of, you know, how to run this as a business and how to run this as a big national non-for-profit and we needed to put like a proper board in place. And, you know, credit to them that their need for the vision or their want for this to actually exist mattered more to them than holding committee positions and they all stepped down. Um, still involved in the charity but on on that like what's the kind of mindset when you're in not-for-profit space versus or even social entrepreneurship versus Mm -hmm. typical business like what's the what happens there financially so you just mentioned people working for nothing you know Mm -hmm. volunteering yeah um how do you work with that over and over again and does it start to become paid positions and then it becomes more like a business after that yes so we it really was a point where as a foundation it kind of grew up um and then put it you know we put a proper not a proper board but we put a different board in place that had a certain skill set um and going back to my morris yama story is that i actually used that that number, that mobile number that he gave me yeah. and gave him a call and told him what we were planning on doing and I wanted to know if he wanted to sit on the board and he said to me, you know, who who would be chairing the board and, you know, I, my exact words were, I think I'm speaking to him <laughs> and he said to me, like, and he said, I think you are <laughs> and that was it. I had my, my chairman. It was huge. Wow. Um, and then with his support, we were able to then, you know, grow the board. So looking at who we wanted on there that could help us in terms of, you know, somebody legal, somebody um, from the banking industry, um, somebody from media, and we were able to get, you know, a Channel 9 newsreader onto the board and, you know, all the different things that we needed to build that Um and that way that we had the support because, like I said, you know, I, I said to this group of mums, I, I don't know how to do, like how to get it bigger. We can continue to drive it um, and we did. And then one of the things that we really talked about was sustainability. And you can only, and this is what I do when I help coach other um, charity founders that start off small and they do want to scale up and, and grow, is that at some point you have to put on paid staff. At some point you have to flip that switch. And it was it wasn't this big transition. It was really slow in terms of at first we were helping pay for childcare so that people, you know, could 
have some free time to, to volunteer. Um, we would, you know, do petrol vouchers if they were doing travel and going to groups. So it was really that kind of small, slow, slow steps. And then one of my co-founders, um, who was absolutely, her name's Kylie, absolutely integral in terms of how we were running, um, she said to me as her kids were growing up, she said, I have to go back to work. Like I have to go back into part-time I can't be out of work forever and that was always the plan that after she had children she'd work part-time so then we had that discussion with the board well why can't this be her part-time work like this is her her passion like how do we we make this happen and then you know and they were all for it like these are business people now saying it's crazy to run so voluntary <laughs> um, and then yes so slowly we started to add paid staff so it was myself it was her it was another co-founder um Otherwise, so, we're going to lose so, really good people that were making a difference, and we were raising the money. Like, yeah, we, we had to we had to change. And on the flip side, how do you keep the dream alive for your kind of your professional committee now? So you've got these high end people in these positions. Um, how do you keep the dream alive for them? Mm-hmm. You know, meaning they all have different work. You know, they sit yes. on a committee. Yeah. How do you keep Miracle Babies alive for them? I think it's just. Um, I don't know if it's our passion, to be honest. So I'll give you an example. Um, so we met the, um, as we were slowly growing the board, um, one of the recommendations that we had to us was um, an exec that was up and coming in Bank West, which is one of our, our biggest banks. And, you know, would we meet with him? And for him, for him, as he was trying, you know, his pathway to CEO, on his CV and on his thing, he, to be sitting on the board of a charity was great. Uh-huh. So they need that too. That gives yes. them kind of clout yeah. and, you know, and how he could progress to be sitting on a charity. So he came into the meeting, met, you know, with the board that we had established, you know, spoke, we spoke about what um, we were doing. At the time his wife was pregnant, so he kind of, you know, understood what a new parent would be feeling, even though they didn't go through the experience, which was amazing and so thankful for that. Um, but, yeah, just kind of that, yeah, so it met, it met both things. Okay. He ended up becoming the CEO, which was amazing, while he was on our board, not because he joined us. Like, I don't want it to sound like that. Yeah, and it was just where he was progressing and the value that he added. And so I'll give you um, a couple of examples around him. Um, we went through, when we grew, we, we like, you know, everything wasn't all rosy and up and up and up. There was a point after we went national that because every single hospital was then recommended, like we got flooded with people that wanted support. We didn't have the fundraising or, the, you know, the, the fundraising arm wasn't strong enough to cope with it. So we got ourselves into a financial situation where we basically had about 12 to 14 weeks left. And if we could not recover, we were going to have to close down. It was the very, very first and only only board meeting I've ever cried in where I thought this could absolutely stop. And, you know, I remember him sitting across from me. I had Kelly and Morris was in the room. There was other people in the room. And even afterwards, he, he said to me, there was no way we were going to let it fall over. He said, You're, we're, as much as we're here for families, we're here because of you, because you've got this absolute drive for this at all costs that you want this to happen. And he said, it's infectious. It's something we love to be around. Um, 
So, you know, he was he then decided with two of his execs, one of his CIO and one of the other execs, that they would run the London Marathon for us and raise <laughs> funds. <laughs> so we gave mm, them a target. And they're, they're all from the UK. Yeah, so that was London. We gave them a target of 10 grand each, 10,000 each. Um, and he they they smashed their target. Instead of thirty thousand, they raised ninety six thousand dollars, and this was all within that year of where we were kind of how do we get you know the funding to go up and up, um, and he was a big catalyst for that. So he had fun with his execs. They got this you know trip out of it. They got to run the marathon. Um, yeah, so it was all always there's always kind of like. Not that payoff between, but you know, like it's yeah. you know what you're doing, but it feels amazing. Um, yeah, and he was the one that challenged I, me to the New York Marathon, so that's why I ended up doing it. And that, these stories are really, I hope everyone's picking up on them. I definitely am. That one of the things, you know, that transition period is really about people, and yes. that that I I think that you're really brave. You know, when you call that number. Yes. On that letter, you know, and, and, and have that chairman discussion because that person then is really connected. Yeah. And then they're on the skinny branch Yes. for you. And just, mm-hmm. I'm really grasping how you're describing this so, journey. So funny story about that is that we had a couple of people that were advising us, um, you know, just, just people that we knew through connections that, um, because I needed to learn how to change our structure and what that meant um, you know, business-wise, legally, and, and all of that. And this one person who I, I really admired and, you know, very, very successful um, in the corporate world absolutely advised me to not ring Morris and make this phone call. He said, you're not ready, you're too small, you're going to embarrass yourself, you're going to embarrass him to have to say no to you. And then I found that other people felt the same way, like outside of our organisation felt the same way. But he sent me this number and one of our, our fundraising um, coordinator at the time, she was a mum of quads, um, so she knows how to get things done, that lady. <laughs> she actually said to me, um, she had this constant quote of don't ask, don't get. And, you know, um, and so that kind of stuck with me. So then we had like a game plan. So I knew if he had said no to me, my very next question, I was prepared with it so that it wasn't awkward or embarrassing, was my my next thing to ask him was, well, do you know someone that would want to or do you know someone you can recommend? So then I kept him as the expert for me. Um, But I didn't have to go that far because he actually said yes. And I remember people being absolutely amazed by the fact that Maurice Yemma said yes to be on this really small, hardly anybody knows about, charity because he does other things that are you know quite big so that yeah that was big for us and Melinda like I want to just jump in here because you know at the beginning I sort of asked why you you know like um I would say just if you just grab that moment why you everybody else gave you all the doubter don't like even don't embarrass yourself stuff like you just got a taste of how the world the high percentage of the world thinks and works and yet you took it on anyway because of amazing person behind you saying don't ask don't get you know like I just really want everybody to grasp that you're not special and you're special and that's I think we all need to grab grab that we're not special and we're special meaning somebody's got to be the one 
Yeah. And you had a game plan, like, <laughs> this? I'm going to ask for a referral. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, all these critical moments, I think, are, are really great for all of us. Like, I'm listening. My partner um, started a foundation, so I've got lots of listening for that. Um, but I've just done a, a kind of a cultural charity event as well. And, and I felt lots of things about, you know, people wanting it to grow and what I feel inside about that and, and just the human of you know like what my mind is doing with that whole thing so like this is what I know about you firstly I'm really grateful that we met um I feel like it just yeah we're supposed to have met and I want to ask you about a hundred million other things so if you're happy with it I'd love you to come back in 2021 and and chat to us again um and we might go even deeper in like the resilience space um you know really grasping what it takes. And even this um, distinction you made about how I want to feel about my life versus what I want to do with my life. So if you're happy with that, I'd love to like go again. Yes, absolutely. I do. I have more stories about that. So it's good. (laughs) You can definitely chat about that. Okay. That would be Okay. So thank you. I just want to thank you so much. Um, not sure when this will air, but I'm just, you're not supposed to do this when I'm doing it. Um, it's like Christmas time. Mm-hmm. So if you hear this in January, here we are at Christmas, yeah. busting our booties to get on vacation. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I. Um, and thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. It's amazing. We so appreciate you listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community on Facebook by searching In The Game Podcast. There you can download your three-step journal and participate in our weekly live video chats. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So... Open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to... Put your fingers on the keys and send us a review.